barges I ride in this wind on my good horse. Those federal judges have to be cleared by the FBI. They look at their background. Are they pedophiles? Are they rapists? You know, do they have some financial nefarious activities, etc.? The way they were selecting the ones to appoint were the ones who had the highest number of skeletons. Meaning, the, the government, this is the Clinton administration, this is the FBI, this is the head of DOJ, they did not want to appoint any federal judges to the bench if the judges or the candidates didn't have enough skeletons. I know. They were all blackmailed. Blackmailed by whom? They were blackmailed by the deep state. They want to make sure that only blackmailable candidates get to hold offices, whether executive offices or they are in Congress, you know, whether they are in courts, federal judges. If you're clean, if you're squeaky clean, and if you start running for a major seat position, the chances are you're not going to get there because you will be disqualified. They don't want you there. They cannot put pressure on you via blackmail. You're listening to episode 748 of Unwelcome Guests. The Tyranny of Enemy Images, Part 3. Pedophilia as a Tool of the Deep State. I'm Robin Upton. Now, firstly, an appreciation thank you to everybody who wrote in to inquire why it's been such a long time since I came up with a show. Was I still making them? Yes, I do intend to keep making these episodes on an as and when basis. In fact, I've been on kind of a holiday. I'm now in the UK experiencing British life firsthand rather than commenting on it from abroad. And my mind is still running along a similar sort of track the way that enemy images are used consistently by the corporate media in particular, but by all of us unknowingly even, when we use these terms and when we share these prejudices. We looked at how the word terrorism keeps getting used not only by corporate media, but even by legislators, although it lacks proper single legal definition. We looked at how it's asymmetric, it's context dependent. So, unlike an ordinary crime such as murder, it does matter who the victim is, who the perpetrator is, because if you're against the terrorists and you use their methods, well, that doesn't make you another terrorist, that makes you a counter-terrorist, and different rules apply. So these are very slippery concepts. Let's just refresh our memory, because it was a long time ago when I broadcast 747, So let's hear Kim Howells, chair of the Parliament Committee that's supposed to oversee the intelligence services. This is what he had to say about potential law changes as regards terrorism. Society is going to decide which way it's going to go on this. Do Do you want to... Do you want to feel liberated enough to allow your children to walk down the street as they've done for generations? Or are you so worried about them that you're going to demand very special protection so that they're not murdered on the streets by some religious fanatic? Now, I don't know whether Kim Howells believes a word of what he's saying there. 
and it certainly illustrates the polarised nature of the debate about terrorism. Another topic which is presented almost exclusively in very polarised terms is that of what the corporate media terms paedophilia, that is, sexual violence against children. Now, I'm not going to probe the mind of the paedophile. I'm not going to try and understand exactly what makes them do what they do, although I think that's an interesting area. Much more focused on why is it that the corporate media and the establishment are busy constructing this enemy image of the paedophile. Uh, what is the outcome of that going to be? As Sibel Edmonds highlighted in the introduction, just because you have a system that says this is the vetting for appointments, we're going to try and weed out all the corrupt judges and whoever, doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to prevent such people from getting to power, and it doesn't even mean that it's going to make that less likely. It might have exactly the converse effect. And without looking at the interplay of the deep state, I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of why so many establishment figures have been accused of sexual violence against children. We begin the show with an interview from autumn 2016. This is Tony Gosling of BCFM interviewing sexual abuse survivor Sam Hill. Now, I noticed uh, earlier on Five Live on the BBC, lots of suggestions that this inquiry should be shut down. What, what do you think? No, I don't think it should. I think we've got to keep going. Um, I think we really need to keep going, and there really need to be some legal changes made, like um, reporting, mandatory reporting, and the, the Official Secrets Act not being used to protect powerful paedophiles. Um, so many changes need to be made. We haven't had really any progress. We need something. Otherwise, people are going to get very, very disheartened. Now, Mar Martin Summers, I'll just bring you in here, because it, uh, Sir Peter Heyman, who was the uh, deputy head of uh, MI6, the uh, Foreign Intelligence Service, he was one of the people who was implicated in, in this paedophilia, but many of these people had, have died. And uh, Is it actually impossible for the state to investigate itself? Well, it shouldn't be. I mean, in theory, the police are supposedly independent of the intelligence services, although often they're not. And, you know, if, if the, if the, uh, my, my suspicion is that the intelligence services have used abuse as a, as a tool to blackmail various people at the top of society to make sure that they do what they're supposed to be, you know, do what they do as they're told. And, um, and that this is really underlying all of this, that you've got, you've got the general power imbalance, which, which has been mentioned. Uh, which is obviously, you know, a big, a big issue with, in this, in this kind of case. But I think also the state itself has, I mean, has used child abuse as, as a tool. So King Cora Boys Home in Northern Ireland, uh, it's a big, big issue over there. Uh, MI5 were using, uh, using it as a place to, to uh, you know, blackmail targets who were in, in you know, they, they would be filmed having sex with underage boys and then blackmailed subsequently. And I think that this is the reason why the state's so paranoid about all this coming out, because it's sort of, uh, it shows the dark side of what they do. Well, I would use the word afraid, not paranoid. I mean, they've got every yeah. right to be afraid, because you're talking about effectively cr a criminal cover-up. Well, what's your take on this whole idea of using Home Office staff to run this inquiry? Well, it, 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 what, what it looks at like from the outside is that they're using this kind of investigation and inquiry in order to try and basically cover their backsides. Um, that's what 
British inquiries generally do, and I don't think we should give up on inquiries, but on the other hand, you've got to recognise that, that the strategy of inquiry from the point of view of the state is to make this stuff go away or at least put, put it on the back burner. It's not to get to the bottom of it, uh, but it's up to everybody else to make sure that the, the inquiry doesn't do that. Also, how far high up do you think this goes? Because, I mean, I mentioned the royal family, but, you know, Jimmy Savile was very friendly with them. They were also involved in the cover-up in Jersey in making sure that the uh, abusers, both sexual and abusers in, in the mental health, is putting people who are mentally ill in uh, solitary confinement for long periods of time, that they were allowed to keep their jobs. Well, if, if as I suspect... Ch uh, that child abuse is not just a random thing, but has actually been used as a tool by the intelligence services to blackmail various top politicians and others, then th that's, that, that will be the bottom line. They don't want it to come out because it, th they, will have, th they, they will have gone out of their way to uh, encourage this kind of behaviour so that those in engaged in the behaviour can be, can be subsequently blackmailed. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the anniversary of the Dutroux scandal in Belgium. So it's not just Britain. It may even be that... Uh, this is going on in many countries, uh, and Britain is just the only country that's, that's grappling with it, trying to deal with it. I'm afraid the idea of using sex with underage people as a means of blackmailing, a, a means of blackmail is definitely, it's just one of the tools of the trade of the secret services, whether British or anybody else. And um, I'm afraid that's probably what we're going to find if we get to the bottom of this. Although whether we will ever get to the bottom of it is another matter, because, of course, there's a lot of vested interest to prevent that from happening. Bit by bit, of course, though, uh, the information is trickling out about who's uh, just uh, talking the talk and who's actually walking the walk as part of this child uh, sex abuse inquiry. Uh, Sam, uh, can I ask you what your thoughts are about what, what should happen next and whether you think that, the, uh, that, that Alexis Jay, who's in charge of this inquiry now, after Lowell Goddard, it looks as if was bullied out, mm. whether she's the right person for the job? I think we've just got to give her time and something has to start happening, really, then we can judge whether it's working or not. What about the way that Lowell Goddard was removed? Have you followed any of that? Because I certainly saw that there were rumours that uh, effectively she was elbowed out because she was not, uh, not happy with Ben Emerson, uh, who's now, of course, gone. Yes, well, that's interesting. Will we ever know? This is, it's all shrouded in secrecy. And, you know, she said she missed her family. Would she have ever really taken the job? in the first place if she was going to miss her family. And we were about to find out what it was all about at the Home Affairs Select Committee when suddenly Keith Vaz is caught in some kind of sting operation, the chair of that committee, and disappears off the face... Well, he certainly wasn't uh, uh, chair of the committee anymore. Uh, what If you were in, uh, in the Home Secretary's position, Amber Rudd, at the moment, uh, what would you be up to, Sam? Oh, that's a, that's a difficult question. Um... I think I, I would be listening to survivors. I think we're the ones with the knowledge, and we have really been stigmatised, and it's just, you know, it's, in, it's sort of endemic of what we've experienced throughout, and we need to be listened to. We're not this, you know, these emotional people who are going to get it wrong. We would actually get it right. We want to point people in the right direction to regards what happened and what went wrong. And in your own case, uh, could you just explain to us the way you understand that the establishment was able to protect your abusers rather than to prosecute them? I think it's just the workload that they, that they fear the workload of, of actually, you know, um, dealing with things. It makes it much easier just to keep the status quo. If someone's vulnerable, we'll keep them in that position. We won't rock the boat by sort of giving them their full rights and 
encouraging them to take action and helping them find proof, etc. They, they just keep the status quo and they follow the orders and the instructions they get from higher up. And uh, basically, you know, it's, it's, they process people and, and stigmatize people frequently. Um, but uh, I, I just don't, I don't know how it can really be changed, but it's the whole the whole ethos of, of our, our institutions really needs a bit of a looking at well i, I think uh, you know, i think it's, it's to be uh, you're to be commended for carrying on the fight and uh, i think there has been a, a sea change in understanding that this is the sort of thing that goes on i mean a few years ago if you'd said that senior people in this country were involved in child sex abuse you you know it, it, it would have it wouldn't have rung true to many people but of course with all the revelations about jimmy savile and so on people are now more aware of the issues um even, and so we you know it's one step forward two steps back isn't it yeah. um but um we've got to carry on because future generations require this to be sorted out so that it gets so that it's put a stop to uh sam um i know you're on twitter where how can people follow your stuff and i know you've also written a book too yes i'm sam hill twelve 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 on twitter and i've written a book called an oath to hell which was my oath being thrown to hell by all the institutions and never being able to go to court and you know and, and the hippocratic oath being broken so it's really a, quite a prominent book it describes the institutions and my dealings with them really um, and what's your thoughts about uh, what the, the best next steps are in the national inquiry well, we, we need to start taking evidence and, and making a bit of progress. Nothing really has been done, has it? I think it, it just needs to really sort of um, get into the right mood for, for moving forward. And, you know, maybe when it gathers pace, people will be more inclined to have a bit of faith in it. Well, one good thing is that this uh, business with uh, Ben Emerson and with Lowell Goddard and various other people involved in the inquiry who have been removed from it does seem to be sorting the sheep from the goats, if I can put it like that. That is the people who are sincerely uh, interested in the interests of the survivors and those who are kind of there going through the motions. So anyway, that's at least one thing positive, even though it's another problem, is that people are slowly learning uh, who it is who's serious about making this inquiry work and who isn't. Mm -hmm. So, Sam Hill, thanks very much for joining us on The Politics Show. Uh, now, Martin, uh, can you, you just uh, sum up your thoughts about uh, wh where the, what you think the prospects are for this inquiry succeeding or not at the moment? Uh, I was actually really annoyed to hear the national media talking about uh, saying that this inquiry should be finished and maybe that's it, it's just never going to work and everyone should just forget about it. That's what they were saying on the BBC earlier, in, earlier on today, suggesting anyway. Well, I've, at one stage there was a suggestion that the inquiry should not include Northern Ireland and should not include King Cora Boys Home, uh, and the, the suggestion was that that shouldn't be included because Ireland wasn't part of the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom, which, in, if, you, if you think about it, is a rather strange argument for the British to make since it basically accepts the Republicans' uh, allegation that, or, or, or not allegation, the Republicans' uh, demand that the, 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 the six counties shouldn't be part of the UK. But anyway, they have included it, and I think... Uh, I think there is evidence to suggest that there's a pattern involved in all of this, especially at the highest levels. And I think if you think about it, the culture of the British intelligence services, particularly MI5, MI6, tended to be a gay culture, for example, at one stage. A lot of gay men were working there. And, of course, for many, many years, uh, gay sex was illegal in this country. So there were a kind of... Because gay sex was illegal and many of MI5, MI6 officers were gay, they generally just started to dis you know, disregard that kind of aspect of the law. But w at what 
point does having sex with underage, you know, and, and, the, and the, the age of consent was 21, and so people will be having sex with people under 21 and thinking, well, that's all right, there's nothing the matter with that. But how low, uh, you know, the whole culture of permissiveness around that uh, allowed this kind of uh, culture to develop. And then, of course, you've got the use of sex uh, illicit sex as a means of blackmail and that's pretty much what appears to have been happening at the King Cora Boys Home. Now we know about the King Cora Boys Home uh, that there's also suggestions that uh, children's homes in northern North Wales and other parts of the country if you were a secret service that wanted to use children as sex objects to blackmail politicians and others then you would go to the to children's well, homes Martin, children the, the survivors group the survivors group at Shirley Oaks which has been very vocal recently which mm. is in South London uh, they have been saying effectively when the people that they were going to to report uh, sexual abuse in care were themselves paedophiles well, that's right. So what you've got is a whole... Uh, there's probably... You've got, they've got a distinction. A, a paedophile subculture within things like care homes, which is... And, 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 and you know, wherever people... You know, paedophiles we know are quite, uh, uh, quite devious at getting access to young people. But, of course, the VIP paedophiles, what we're talking about here, Andy Heyman... Uh, it wasn't Andy Heyman, I've forgotten his name. He was second in command of MI6... And he was found, that, that some stuff was found on a bus, you know, photographs. He'd left them on the bus. The police went round to him and said, well, what's all this about? But he was let off. And I think that the culture of paedophilia is ingrained in the intelligence services. I mean, it would be okay, it. wouldn't it, if it was just, say, one institution, but it seems as if it's systematic, uh, where you've got social services, police all covering up and nobody well, able if you, to... If you're, going to if, you're going, if you're going to have a systematic programme of encouraging child abuse for political reasons, then you're going to have to have a pretty su substantial uh, cover-up operation ready to go. And don't forget, we're talking about people who are, you know, trained intelligence officers who know how to cover their tracks and know how to pull the right strings to get the results they want. Okay, before we leave the subject, let's just have a listen, because there's no Prime Minister's questions during the conference season, but this was put a couple of weeks ago but, uh, and about the uh, end of uh, Lowell Goddard uh, chairing the Child Sex Abuse Inquiry by Lisa Nandy. Lisa Nandy! It's been two years since the Prime Minister set up the Child Abuse Inquiry. It's onto its fourth chair, and last week the outgoing chair said that it had become inherently unmanageable. Since the Prime Minister appointed Dame yeah. Lowell Goddard to her position, will she insist that she comes before this House yeah, to explain yeah, herself? Yeah. Surely child abuse survivors deserve an explanation. Yeah. Well, first of all, on the, on the process point that she's raised with me, of course it's not for the Prime Minister to insist who attends before a committee of this House. I understand Dame Lowell Goddard has been invited to attend the committee. But what I would say on the child abuse issue is I think she and I share, we share across this House, many honourable members, a desire to see these issues of these appalling crimes of child abuse being properly looked into. It's important that the inquiry, uh, Dame Lowell Goddard has set up the inquiry, the Truth Project, uh, many aspects of this which are already in place and operating. Uh, and I'm very pleased uh, that Alexis Jay has taken on the role as chairman of the inquiry. She chaired the Rotherham work. I think she will do this work extremely well. And we will have answers to questions that so many have been asking for too long. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, one thing that the Prime Minister didn't say there was that Alexis J uh, didn't actually recommend any kind of uh, disciplinary action on any of the social workers or police that allowed this abuse to go on in Rotherham for something like nearly 15 years with thousands of offences, which many of which, of course, were reported to the police but without any action. Well, in other words, the suggestion is that the British are trying to cover things up by using their uh, uh, inquiry system and, and all the rest of it. Well, that that's, that's, goes without saying. We could say, well, let's not have an inquiry at all because it's going to be a cover-up. Uh, we've got to work with what we've got and keep banging away at it. Well, uh, I don't think that's going to happen because there are some people who are pretty determined to make sure this inquiry does work and that anybody that's trying to obstruct it is removed from the actual organisation of that inquiry. So we'll see what happens uh, in future weeks. Celebrating diversity, this is Bristol's BCFM 93.2. Now, let's play a quick summary. This is from May 2015, so it's not completely up to date but it's an NPR summary of some of the VI paedophile reports, which were, of course, spurred on by the exposure of Sir Jimmy Savile as a necrophiliac and a child sex abuser. For decades, there were whispers of a pedophile ring operating at the highest levels of British society. Yesterday, British police announced results of an investigation that revealed those rumors to be an understatement. We should note this story might be disturbing to some listeners. Vicki Barker reports from London. The tally of abuse seems to embrace virtually every British institution. Of the 1,433 suspects, 261 are considered people of public prominence, entertainers, athletes, and politicians. Hundreds more held responsible positions at schools, orphanages, hospitals, prisons, the military. Some 200 are now dead. Chief Constable Simon Bailey is leading the inquiry, codenamed Operation Hydrant. It gives you some idea of the scale of the challenge that we're facing because this simply cannot be simply about the police service. It is far, far broader than that. The police haven't always been part of the solution. There are allegations that senior officers helped quash previous investigations. Three bronze dolphins cavort in the courtyard fountain at Dolphin Square. A stone's throw from Parliament and the government ministries of Whitehall, this vast 1930s apartment complex has long been a bolt hole for the British establishment. But Dolphin Square is also one of several addresses across London where one pedophile ring, comprising some of Britain's most powerful men, allegedly abused underage boys in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Boys as young as six bust in from care homes or the slums. There are tales of orgies and even one allegation of murder. Why would the state choose systematically to protect VIP pedophiles? In March, the BBC reported that an undercover police team investigating the ring in the early 1980s was ordered to hand over all of its evidence and the officers threatened with prosecution under the Official Secrets Act. James Badenock is a senior British lawyer who has handled a number of cases involving the sexual abuse of children. The idea that they were terrorised in the way alleged doesn't surprise me at all. What surprises me, like so many other citizens of this country, is the idea that people so high up would have been A, involved in it, and B, willing to cover it up. 
Those trying to parse these new allegations of that long-ago abuse speak of a different time and age, of a white, male, British elite largely educated at boarding schools where bullies and pedophiles found fertile ground, of a culture of deference and an establishment that instinctively protected itself. So, yeah, I mean, this is our, this is our ambitious business plan. John um, Bird helps run the National Association for People Abused in Childhood, or NAPAC. For decades, he says, its hotline has been hearing from men who say they were abused as children at Dolphin Square and elsewhere. The few who went to the police at the time got nowhere. The police are now taking it seriously. For years they didn't. Now they have realized they've had to look again at all of these old stories. The publicity surrounding the late British DJ Jimmy Savile, posthumously exposed as a prolific pedophile in 2012, helped open a floodgate. Hundreds of men and women came forward and continue to come forward to say they were victims. Yesterday's revelations are unlikely to be the last. Operation Hydrant is among at least 16 police, government, and independent inquiries into historical pedophile abuse now underway in Britain. Now, that was a couple of years ago, and I'm not holding my breath about any one particular inquiry. The general pattern, I think it's easier to understand, reflecting on the fact that the deputy head of MI6 was a paedophile with compromised material. That might explain why dossiers go missing or witnesses retract statements or just disappear, drop off the radar. As an illustration of how material can disappear off the radar... Let's hear the following interview of Johnny Rotten in 1978, which the BBC chose not to broadcast. An unbroadcast section of a BBC radio interview you did in 1978, recently came to light, included on a, a pill album, and you were talking about making a film where you kill famous people. Now, it's never been played on television before, but it has a particular uh, relevance. Let's listen to this. So who else is on the Goner list? Oh, it's endless, believe me. I just want to make a film of it. On film, I'd like to kill Jimmy Savile. I think he's a hypocrite. When I write... I bet he's into all kinds of seediness that we all know about but they're not allowed to talk about. I know some rumours. <laughs> I bet none of this will be allowed out. I shouldn't imagine libelous stuff will be allowed out. Nothing I've said is libel. Sounds a bit harsh, the death list there. Well, but actually... Sometimes you, you're contentious in life just because you're bored of that... that but but that put aside, that, put, put aside the, the, the rhetoric you were using, the fact that in 1978, at the height of the Sex Pistols explosion, there you are saying about Jimmy Savile, he was into all kinds of seediness that we all knew about, we weren't allowed to talk about it, I know some rumours. So you, you had heard the kind of thing that we now know about him or, yeah. or stuff like that? Yeah. I think most kids did too. Most kids wanted to go to the top of the pops, but we all knew what that cigar muncher was up to. But I'm very, very bitter that the likes of Savile and the rest of them were allowed to continue. Did you ever try and do anything about Savile? I did my bit. I said what I had to. Did they air that? No. It just got suppressed yeah. for, for legal reasons. Yeah. And I found myself being banned from BBC Radio there for quite a while. 
if I might, contentious behaviour. Because of that... They wouldn't state this directly. There'd be other excuses. I mean, it's shocking. Oh, yeah. He got away with it for another 30-odd years. Well, not only him, a whole bunch of them. And these are the purveyors of good taste, huh? You were too offensive. Brilliant, isn't it? Well, I'm still here, and the rest of them, what, what are still alive, nice bit of jail time for them. Jail time! <laughs> I have to read this. Uh, the BBC has said it's appalled by Savile's crimes and that the Dame Janet Smith Review is considering the culture and practices of the BBC during that period. And look spontaneous applause when Johnny Rotten says, Jail time! And gloats over the potential suffering of a lot of old men. Well, would that actually improve anybody's lot, put old people in jail? Would it, for example, deter younger people from committing the same acts of violence? These are important questions which the zero-sum mindset, the enemy image, doesn't actually ever encourage us to ask. Another approach might be to say, how could we best prevent such acts of violence against children? I hope by now you may be reflecting on the persecution of the paedophile as a tool of the deep state. If the deep state has, say, photographic evidence, or just corrupt judges, and therefore the de facto ability to paint somebody as a paedophile with all that goes along with it, with the current mindset, then is that perhaps a useful tool in the armory of the deep state? We're now ready for our main piece. The next voice you will hear is that of Brian Gerrish, from whose programme Dispatches from the Front I recorded this interview. Um, my guest today is Detective Constable John of the Metropolitan Police. And John has been a specialist in child abuse matters. And uh, for our audience, I have to say, he, he has some really incredible things to say um, about uh, what he's experienced and uh, some of the procedures that he's encountered within the Met Police. So, John, welcome. Thank you. Um, it's good to have you here in the UK Column studio after all this time. Um, just start somewhere at the beginning. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and just when did you become a policeman and uh, what what sort of things have you done before you got near the child protection issues? Well, I, I joined the police in the beginning of the 1990s. Um, my early career was just as a uniform officer. And... Um, I sort of soon progressed quickly into the, the CID department and uh, all was going well without incident. And then I moved on to a specialist operation, which was tracking down transient paedophiles because the Sex Offenders Registry, Registry Act had been brought in in 1997. And they were finding that a lot of sex offenders were, were going off the radar, were going missing. So um, I was asked to... Uh, front part of uh, the Met's effort into tracking down some of the transient paedophiles. Um, that was, you know, it was an honour to do it and it was a good little role. But 
things started to sort of um, go awry with it because there was um, two sex offenders, which my, my remit was the inland waterways of London, but it soon spread to a national basis. And they, they had information that um, sex offenders were uh, coming out of prison after conviction, caution or serving a sentence for what they call a Schedule 1 sexual offence were required to sign uh, the sex offenders register and just go missing. But they would go in to live on canal boats. Uh, they said, we, we've got two. We think there's probably a couple more. You're on it for the next few months. See if you can, you know, double the figures and find two more. Well, what happened was within a few months, I'd found 90. And with that sort of exposed that there was a loophole in the law that allowed people to live on canal boats, avoid registry, and, and just act with impunity. So, so these people could have anonymous lives, effectively. Um, they, they're there living in an area, uh, but because they're on a boat, they don't have to identify themselves. They're not on the uh, um, council register. Nothing. They, they, electoral they, register. Yeah, yeah they, they were, uh, you know, basically living like a free life, and uh, no one knew where they were, what they were doing or anything. But there's quite a few factors that were involved. The one is that it's quite like back then was like a hippie alternative community. There was a bit of an anti-police vibe to it. Um, and if you're a fellow boater, as it were, you was instantly liked and welcomed by this community. But the community, actually, some of them didn't realise who they were having living next door to them. And on a few occasions, um, some of these people were... were pulling up into the uh, a boating community and there was children there and they were offering to act as babysitters and things like that, you know, and there were some dangerous sex offenders there. And um, the, the canal system back then, you know, no one ever went there. They, uh, you know, it was sort of basically out the remit. But canals are so old that they sort of um, transgressed boundary borders. So the Registry Act said that you had to register as a sex offender within the police district where you resided within 28 days. But some of these canals, they actually straddled police districts. On some occasions, three or four districts would merge at one area. So you could be living on a canal boat and on your 27th day, move to the other side of the bank and then you'd get another 28 days. And not only that, kids are attracted to canals. And also back then, there was a program called Rosie and Jim just remind me when you're talking. What We're date? talking about sort of late 90s now, right. late 90s, early two, 2000. And there was a, a children's program, Rosie and Jim, and it, it was sort of like glamorising life on a canal. And, and it's not a bad life. But, you know, these people were, were living on there and no one knew where they were or what they were doing. And what happened then was that uh, highlighted what was going on and started getting a lot of national interest from national crime agencies and start getting a lot of help from what used to be the National Crime Squad and um, also the Scotland Yard's paedophile unit. We were working jointly because of the successes I was having. And I can always remember a, a corridor conversation, as we call it, by a very seasoned, experienced uh, paedophile unit detective, a real good man, and he drags me to one side and he said, you know, it's a bizarre world because... In any form of policing, when you get too good at your job, you get promoted and you get looked after. In this game, when it involves those high up, and by that he was meaning politicians, people on the upper echelons of society, he said it's a problem. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm hearing your name mentioned in a lot of places now. 
He said, you're getting a bit too good at what you're doing. He said, you've got to be very, very careful, son. And I said, well, why? Why is it like that? And he turned around to me and he said, right. He said, on two occasions, we had Leon Britton, the MP, Tory MP, we had him banged to rights. And on both occasions, the funding was pulled. He said, they will do the same to you. Well, the odd thing happened was that, I mean, I knew who Leon Britton was, but I, I, I had no interest in politics or anything like that back in them days. And um, I can even remember asking, like my mum, I said, you know, Leon Britton, is, is he you know, a man of any note? And she said, well, I know he's an MP. I said, well, all right. And didn't really say much. And uh, literally two weeks after that, I get called into a senior officer's uh, room. He said, come and see me, come and see me. What, what sort of rank officer would that we, be? We're talking uh, chief inspector at the time. Um, but it was a small unit, so chief inspector was quite senior, really, you know. Um, and he said, look, I'm sorry to say it, he said, but um, we're, we're, we're withdrawing you from the operation. I said, but why? He said, look, I can't tell you, but it's come from high up. It's being shut down. And I thought, well, I was a bit confused. I said, but that's, that's unfair. You know, this is this is really going places. And he said, look, you're going to be commended and you can have any job you want. Don't worry about it. We're, we've been told to look after you. But unfortunately, it's out of my hands. It's been pulled. So they were shutting down all of the work in relation to paedophiles living in this canal network. Yeah, and I was the only sort of national steer. It was me. I was the focal point. And I was getting inquiries from all over the world coming from the Falkland Islands, the Channel Islands, a lot of the islands, funny enough. Um, but everywhere they were coming in, you know, reports of sex offenders on boats. It was it was just getting, it was going stupid. It was just mushrooming. And and I just couldn't get it. But then this fella's words resonated with me. And I was a bit, I was disgusted with it, to be honest. And I couldn't get any answers. No answers at all. And it was the, the fellas that were working on the support side of it, they were they were really apologetic and upset, and they said, "Look, there's nothing we could do about it." So I said, "Well, I'm not staying. I'm leaving." So I left, and I got a job with it was you know quite an elite little unit. It was the uh, the police's clubs and vice unit, and the clubs and vice they had the uh, the governance for anything to do with vice, whether it be prostitution or gambling, but also for a lot of the the main licenses for the big nightclubs, because London is like the club in central, you know, for, for Europe. Um, so I went on to this job, and I was uh, I got a job with what they call the, the Street Offences Unit, and Street Offences relates to the old Street Offences Act of the last century, which refers to prostitution, street prostitution. And our job was to go and, and sort of arrest street prostitutes, really, but also we had governance for juveniles, so if a juvenile was found on the street in a red light area late at night, believed involved in it, they were to be sort of brought in, taken into protective custody. And every now and then, um, a child would be found, usually a girl. And our job was to then bring her in, inform social services. The kid would then be placed into protective police custody while social services work out emergency protection orders, EPOs. What what sort of age for the girls then? At fourteen, you know, it was it tended to be under seventeen. The, the law was a bit, the the law prior to the implementation of the amended sex offender. Um, I forget what it's called now. Not sex offenders. It is to do with uh, child sexual offences. But uh, it'll, it'll come to me. The Sexual Offences Act, I think, it got amended two thousand three, was quite complicated. 
you know, and it, and it was going back to, it was gender specific as well. So fences against boys were different against fences against girls. And anyway, so we would, we would find these, these kids and take them into custody and everything else. But the problem then was that it was a competitive environment. So it was number crunching. So you were given a target of each car that was put out, three cars were put out per night. And you would have a competition who could arrest as many prostitutes as you can. And 10 would be a good figure. And if you did that every day of the week, you was a top team. So there was competitions. And you could process a prostitute very quickly via the custody. And it, it was pointless because all of them were drug addicts. All of them had come from the care system. And if you brought a kid in, that was your night finished. The car was taken off the road. Um... And that was it, so that you wouldn't get the figures. So you're encouraged not to deal with them. Right, that, that's, that is a very interesting comment, isn't it, for people who look to the police to be uh, protecting the weak and vulnerable in society. And you're saying that the regime to get the, the targets for the prostitutes means that vulnerable children were... We don't want, we don't want to take them. Well, it is. I mean, it's shocking because... If you think about it, if, if a man has sex with a prostitute, it's the woman who commits the offence, right? But that's that's a woman of consent in age. Someone has sex with a child, that's rape. And you're talking a major crime offence. You're talking an offence that carries a life tariff, yet they're, they're committing major crime and you, you're sort of dissuaded from dealing with it. And I remember bringing one little girl in she was 14, oh, around about 14, and a lot of these kids were undernourished and they were heavily infected with diseases like hepatitis C, some of HIV and things like that, you know, and so they looked younger than their age. And one young girl brought in, she had scabies due to her lifestyle, and the moaning that they gave me for bringing the girl in because they said the car will now, now need to be cleaned, the room that you take them to will now need to be fumigated. The girl's a pain in the arse because she's always shouting and screaming, and, you know, and it's pointless anyway because she'll be back out tomorrow. So there, there was, it was appalling, really. It was, you know, and what they said, if you see them again, just tell her to, to do one to get out of here. Right, and and this was being told to all the police. It wasn't just yourself. Anybody who was involved in this type yeah. of work was told this. That was told, yeah, that, yeah. that was that was the role, the unwritten role. Right. And um, so they never dealt with it. But what, what happened was there was information from the moment I came in regarding one particular woman. And her name, her name was Foxy. Her street name was Foxy. And she was a larger-than-life character. And she was a street prostitute. But she was rumoured to be pimping out young girls. And I'd heard the rumours from the moment I walked in the office. But nothing was ever done about this woman. Anyway, I, I sort of got moved on merit i did very well on the street um and what I, was your rank then detective right you know um and i was chosen to go onto quite an elite little unit not dealing with vice it was dealing with other stuff more organized crime and i went on to that and i did incredibly well but then i was asked to come back to vice and to uh, be the senior investigating officer in an allegation of child prostitution. So, um, but by that time, I think what we need to establish as well is that from 2000, I had been a lone parent of four children. I've been left to bring up four children and the relevance will become apparent, you know, shortly. So 
not only was I then asked to work again back with the children, I was now looking after children, my own, and, you know, they were all at that time under 10 and one was an infant. So it was a bit hard going for me and the hours were irregular and, you know, childcare was a bit of a nightmare, especially if you're dealing with kids, being taken in care orders, you know, your day could be a long one. But, you know, I was sort of told, look, you know, we'd like you to go on it. So I did it. And it was a young girl called Zoe. And Zoe had, um, she was, I think, about 14 or something like that. Again, very young looking for her age. So Zoe looked about 12. And she'd made an allegation that this woman, Foxy, had been pimping her out. And she'd made a couple of allegations and they hadn't gone anywhere. So what I was told was, look, can you look into it? She's made allegations before. She's a bit of a nightmare. She might be lying. She might not. But she's a bit persistent. See what you can do. So I went, okay. So I uh, I went to see the girl, made an appointment, and was told she's very anti-police, you know, and she is a bit of a handful. So I went with a colleague. To, uh, they made the introduction, introduced me to this girl. And, you know, and what I used to do was, I'd go with the kids. So I would sit down and I'd just start doodling or drawing or something like that, engaging them, and then ice-breaking stuff. And then the conversation, the narrative begins. Anyway, um, we started chatting and everything else, and she turned around to me. She said, you know, you're different to all the others. I went, well, that's all right. You know, I don't mean to, you know, and I wouldn't even dress like the other coppers. I just, I was always a uh, scruff bag, really. You know, I, I hated wearing a suit, you know, and I liked the street. I was good on the street. You know? And uh, and and she said, you know, I like you. I, I'm happy to talk to you. I said, okay, well, let's do it properly then. She said, yeah, all right. So we had an agreement. We shook hands. We made an appointment to do a proper, what they call an ABE interview, which is like a video recorded interview. And um, we sat down, we had a chat, we, we, we interviewed her, and she told me the story start to finish. And she's the uh, product of um, broken family. The mother was a drug addict, the father was absent. And it, the mother was buying drugs off this girl, Foxy, and Foxy then started to groom her because her mother was unable to look after her. She then ended up living with the grandparents, but the grandparents lived in a red light area. And so Foxy would go and pick this young girl up and a basic grooming, look after her, show her some attention, a bit of love, do her hair for her, give her makeup, but then introduce her to cannabis, got smoking cannabis, and then would then take her to hotels. These were bottom end hotels. These are the sort of places where a lot of the builders would go to, you know. So they'll be like converted uh, Victorian houses or whatever. In one, one area of London, there's a big row of them. And a lot of them were, were maintenance and building works from the north would come down to stay in these hotels. So Foxy had an agreement with the night porters. And the night porters would make a room available for her. So she would take her clients in there. So she'd go in there with her client start having sex and have this young girl there watching and then encourage the young girl to get involved. And then from there, she would then start giving the young girl the bigger drugs. So the Class A drugs is what they want the kids on. Once they got them on the Class A drugs, especially the crack cocaine, it's got a, a real grip on them, you know. And this girl had no, no way of getting these drugs, so she relied on Foxy as a medicine lady, you know. So she got her on crack cocaine and then she started then pimping the young girl out, getting the young girl involved. And then she would then get the girl to introduce her friends to it. So she was then introducing her friends. Also come from families that parents were drug addicts or absent or whatever. And so, or in the care system. 
in fact, all the kids we dealt with were subject to care orders, whether they were residential care orders or, or just normal care orders. Yeah. But they're all known to social services and from at-risk backgrounds. And so she gave me the name of another kid. So I went to see that girl. The story was identical. And the other thing was, I used to say, well, what about the police? Did the police ever get involved? And both girls said, well, we would get hidden in a bush. If we was put on the street, if the police came, Foxy would hide us in a bush. But she she knew the coppers anyway. She'd just flirt with them and they would just let her go. And she said, but also there's a judge. There's a judge involved. I said, what do you mean? She went, oh, judge at the, the magistrate's court. So when Foxy's charged and goes for the judge, the judge is her client anyway. So the judge lets her off. So I checked this out. I went through the, the, the disposal history, the criminal history of this girl, and found she keeps getting bind-overs, this Foxy. So I thought, right, well, there's something in this. So all of a sudden, these girls then introduced me to other girls who introduced me to other girls. And these ages went down to nine years old. Right. And, you know, some came from traveller sites. Uh, some actually came from the residential care homes. And there was no one looking out for them. And these kids were known to the police because they were regular absconders from care. And uh, they were regularly found in red light areas. And no one had actually pieced any of this together. So I started to uh, pull it all together. The intelligence was just flowing. And information was coming in from drug dealers on the street. They were also concerned about it. And also other prostitutes were coming forward and talking to us, you know, and saying, you know, this is what's happening. I then got approached by a social worker, a senior social worker. And at the time, this this operation, this line of work was mainly in Westminster. And it started spiralling out to, to the outer boroughs of London and into the provinces. And this was from Croydon. And the social worker said, look, we've got a big problem down in Croydon. And my inquiries did then start to lead to Croydon. And, and the significance of this is that it's now moving into areas of a better class of person. Is that what it means? Well, well, what, what you're saying, at first it was central London because there is a transient population and people don't tend to live there, they just work there. And when, when they're working away from home, a bit like someone going to Thailand, they will commit a crime like, you know, of, of soliciting a prostitute or whatever because they've got the anonymity of being a tourist. But when they live in an area, there's a different mindset. So it's going into an area that is more residential. And, yeah, I would say some of the areas were bad areas. They were bad areas. And I think most of them had their own social problems. But there was a lot of residential kids' homes in these outer boroughs. And a lot of kids would be farmed out. And the kids would network. You know, so if a kid was taken into into a secure unit for whatever reason, they would go in there, they would network with other kids. And the main way of earning money was either through through violent crime, robbery, or with the girls, it was prostitution. So these networks were all set up, you know, and no one was looking, there was no one looking into them at all. Anyway, a social worker from Croydon said, you know, we've got a problem. I said, okay. And they said, look, we have meetings regularly about certain girls. She said, I'll give you a list of these girls and they are in trouble. And one girl, she had, such infection inside inside her that she would regularly pass blood and and all sorts of you know nastiness would come out because she had active cysts inside her through through prostitution and she was a young kid you know she said if something's not done this girl's going to die she's being pimped out she's she's on her knees this girl you know she said but we invite the police along 
we invite the police. We have been doing it for nearly 10 years and each time they refuse. I said, well, who are you inviting? They said, well, your unit, the vice unit. We've invited them so many times, they know about this. So I then went back in the records and I went back 10 years and I went back through all the records of kids found in red light areas over the last 10 years. And yeah, there, it, there was rights. And I was contacting some of these kids who are now adults. And, they, and I said, well, what was happening? They said, well, if the police found us, they told us, tell us to do one, get out of here. Um, or oh, they just ignore us. They, they knew we were being pimped out. I said, did anyone get taken in for it? And they said, no, no, we were doing it all the time. So it had been going on historically and the unit had known about it. So how how long had it been going on? From for? the time I was on there, I'd gone back 10 years and it had gone back further than that. Right. And these were, these were in select red light areas. Uh, Kings Cross, Islington, um, Westminster, all in London, you know, and they were the main ones where the kids were, were being worked. But now Croydon was coming to know, but the police knew about Croydon as well. You know, so these areas, it wasn't any any news, you know. But then what you've also got is missing persons unit. So um, someone goes missing, a missing person unit will be appointed to look into, you know, uh, what's happened to them where they are investigated. But every time a child comes back late or, or fails to attend uh, a kid's home curfew, which will be an unreasonable hour, say like nine o'clock, eight o'clock, they don't turn up, the police are called. A form's filmed out, and it's just a process because these kids do come back. And uh, so these missing persons, they knew about them. They knew about these kids, and they were just seen as, as a nuisance. It was just a routine, oh, so-and-so's gone missing again. They'll be back tomorrow. But And they they fill out the form. They call it ACE, Arse Covering Exercise. And it's the only reason they do it. No one looks into the, 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 the reasons why these kids are going missing. So I drafted up a report. It was factually based. It was concise. Um, and, and it had evidence, it had evidence back in it. And it was a small, it was a pricey of a report. And it was just highlighting the extent, the sheer extent of the problem, the history behind the problem, uh, the results of the problem, the fact that the kids are suffering and they're also grooming other kids into it is self-perpetuating monster. And and I just put a few of the opinions, you know, the factual opinions of the social workers. And and in that report, were you also were you also highlighting the fact that the police were not acting as they should, or police yeah. Con- yeah. police officers had hadn't acted? I mean, what, what I did was I, I was always mindful of the fact that I'll never reinvent the wheel, and I'm no better than anyone else. So I don't want to criticise a colleague. But what I put in, these kids were known to the police. They, these investigations were never followed up for whatever rationale. So I, I didn't criticise anyone. But it has to be noted that this isn't a new thing. This has been known about. But I also mentioned the fact that there are allegations involving a judge and that, that, that other police officers are aware. And there was also um, someone connected to the, the music department of the BBC was involved, a, a manager of, of that. So, you know, and anyway, that went in and I thought, right, well, they've been made aware now. And I would always put reports on for whatever reason, reports would go on, intelligence reports, police works on intelligence. And I then get a phone call within about an hour of the report going through. And it's from the governing detective inspector. And he said to me, John, uh, about this report you put on, I was thinking, good. 
brilliant. You know, I've now shown them the goose that is giving the golden eggs and hopefully this will move forward. You know, I really thought I was going to get praise for it. And then what happened was he said, uh, we need to talk now. Get in my office now. I went, okay. So I went down to see him. I was in a different building. I travelled down, went in his office. And it was like someone had set a pit bull on me. Started swearing and shouting and what have you done? You can't do things like this. I'm taking, he's shutting it down. I'm taking you off. So he withdrew me straight away from the operation. And that really upset me, you know, because I was moving forward, you know. And I thought, well, if I go, who else is going to, you know, no one can ever do the job as good as you do it. Do you know what I mean? And looking back on it, I did a good job, whereas others hadn't. And I don't want to be conceited, but that's what happened, you know. And, um, I, d- I was mortified, absolutely mortified. What, what was in your head about why you'd got this response? You thought you were going to be praised for it. You get attacked by a pit bull. Yeah. What, well, why did you think it was? Well, well I mean, it, it, it was it was some sort of weird sort of cognitive distortion because he, he turned around and said that, that we had known about this and the reason the kids are talking to you now was because they were dealt with properly 10 years ago and they're now happy to come forward and talk to you. Nothing to do with my good work. It was to do with the good work of other officers before me. And and it, it was just absolute dire nonsense. And I was just confused. I was, I was literally totally confused. But it was done with such aggression. And what we used to call it in the police was a hairdryer, an old school shouting thing, you know, screaming and shouting. And I walked away really licking my wounds and scratching my head. So um, I, didn't, I thought, what? so I, I, I didn't go back to work. Thought, what the hell's going on? I said, never went back to work the next day. And anyway, I get a phone call, um, and it was from the the high up boss, the, the detective chief superintendent of the unit. And he said, uh, John, what's gone on? I said, Well, I don't know. I'm a bit confused. He went, We need to have a chat. I said, Okay. He said, Well, don't rush back to work. Have the summer on me. And it was the summer. Take your kids away. What what date is this now? This was this was we're talking about I think about two thousand and four around that time, and this was in the summer, beginning of the summer. And he said, "We well, have the summer on me, you know. Go away with your kids, take your kids away." So he's aware of my family situation. He said, "I know, you know, it's tough for you. Go away, and when you get back, when you're ready, let's sort all this out. It's not going to be a problem." And I'm going to be honest now. I like the fella. He was a nice bloke. He was a nice bloke. And so I said, really? He went, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. It trivialised everything. So anyway, I came back, and but it was on my mind all the time because, you know, the, these kids weren't they, they weren't getting served anymore. They, there was no one there for these kids, you know. And they relied on you. They relied on you for protection, and, and they wanted a win. They wanted, because also behind this was organised criminality. The girl that was running it, she was backed up by some very, very serious gangsters and it re- resulted in me getting credible death threats and everything. These, you know, there was money at stake here, there was a livelihood for these people and they were connected gangsters, you know. And these kids were scared and these kids, some of these kids, if they went back home, they went back to the ghettos where these people were operating and they were petrified. So, um, I, uh, I came back to work and sure enough, the, the, boss calls me in and I said to him no I'm not talking to you on my own I want someone with me so I, I got a representative from the human resources department personnel came sat down and he said to me John well what, what's gone on made me a cup of tea 
I said, well, I'll only talk to you if I can be honest. He said, well, yeah, that goes both ways. I said, okay. I said, well, what have I done? I said, I, you know, I really thought I'd done well. I'd exposed this, I'd done this, I'd done this. And he turned around to me and said, well, that's a problem. 